right. Okay. And, um, yeah, so tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself, your role in the Fox Project, and what you guys do. Um, well, uh, I'm the founder of the Fox Project. We've been going for 30, 33 years now. And um, the original uh, basis for setting up the organization was really as an information bureau on foxes because there really wasn't anywhere in Britain if you wanted to know why there was a fox in your garden or what it was doing or what you could expect from it you had nowhere really to go so that was our initial reason for setting the organization up over the years it's changed a bit and we've um, we've become a wildlife hospital so we're now taking in approximately 1300 foxes a year into our hospital um, and dealing with them as best we can. Um, so that's become our priority in a way. We're still an information bureau. Um, we also set up um, uh, Britain's first kind of wildlife deterrence consultancy, which was effectively a way of helping people resolve problems they may have with foxes in, in their gardens. If they have problems, a lot, most people don't, but those that do, it's mostly quite minor. It's just basically uh, leaving feces around the garden, uh, pooing on the patio, that kind of thing, or um, uh, digging up the flower beds. It's nothing very much, but it's enough to, to, to upset people. So in the old days, before the 1980s, I suppose, the way most problems will be resolved would be lethal it would be killing the fox whatever because nobody knew anything different really and we come up with a, a various ways of resolving the problems by using the animal's own psychology against it and that was mostly by using artificial scent marks so you were you were really interfering with the fox's ownership of the territory and uh, and that would encourage them to leave that area alone they just wouldn't bother to go on there because it was uncomfortable it was uh, um, psychologically uh, not where you wanted to be. So foxes would leave those areas alone. And that's become um, quite a, a major thing now across the UK that most, every council in the country uses that kind of um, uh, approach. And uh, and that's what people want. They don't, they may have a problem with the animal, but they don't particularly want to kill it. They just want to resolve their problem really. And they can do so quite easily and quite cheaply by that means. So we kind of have developed into being three things, an information bureau, a wildlife hospital, and a wildlife deterrence consultancy. So that's the three-pronged approach that we have. Yeah, it's quite interesting that something, a, a technique that you came up with more than 30 years ago is today still applied in a much bigger scale, I would say. Oh, yes, it has. I mean, it's developed into a situation where there are people, all uh, companies all over the country. Some of them had been uh, pest control companies, so they were killing foxes, and they've changed their approach now, so they're using deterrence instead, because long-term it's more effective. And killing foxes doesn't achieve anything because they simply breed back to the same numbers every year. So it doesn't make any difference whether you kill them or not. Well, it makes a difference to the vox, but it doesn't make a difference to the people. Um, so it's become a it's become a very accepted way of, of dealing with problems. And I know that happens across the world. I mean, New York, they do the same thing with raccoons. Um, and, uh, and, and I did speak to somebody in Paris who was trying to do something with wild boar in the suburbs of Paris. 
by using deterrence methods. So it's becoming a much more green approach, really. More sustainable. So and more humane. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the population in the UK of foxes, could you tell us a bit more how that is, what is the current status of that? Is it declining? Is it increasing? Is it neutral? It's kind of interesting because we've got a, a very high urban population, um, which doesn't occur anywhere else in the world, as far as I understand it. I and mean, London alone has a population of about 15,000 foxes, <laughs> uh, which doesn't change from year to year. It, well, it changes because about two-thirds to, uh, to three-quarters of them die every year and are replaced. So, But it still change, It still comes out at around about 15,000 as a permanent population. Um, most British cities have a population now. It's not necessarily large, but uh, all the way up to Scotland, there is a, a significant population that's become uh, quite normal. That population is fairly stable. And I think it's because... While there are hazards, uh, traffic being the most obvious one, um, they the life in an urban society is quite easy because we're not we're a very untidy species. We leave a lot of rubbish lying around, a lot of food lying around, a lot of food is thrown out of car windows when people drive away from McDonald's, that kind of thing, you know. And um, uh, so foxes find it fairly easy to make a good living. Um, in an urban area, and they've still got the natural prey like mice and rats and voles and uh, and birds. So they they just got it that little bit easier. Um, so I think they they're hanging on and doing very well. In rural areas, the population has declined since the 1990s by around about 43%, according to the latest scientific surveys, um, and that's largely being considered to be down to farming methods. Um, some of those farming methods are overuse of pesticides in particular, which is a major concern for uh, for people in this country. Farmers will buy something over the counter that's kind of a pesticide to try to improve their soil or try to improve their crop yield. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, it'll say on the can, use this amount and you will expect to see this kind of improvement. And instead of using that amount, they'll use four times that amount because then it will give them four times that amount of improvement. And, of course, most of that pesticide is just washing off the land into ditches, into water, into rivers, into streams. And that's poisoning wildlife. Not always poisoning them in terms of killing them, but with some species, it's causing them to... Um, uh, their fertility to go down. So they're not breeding up to the same numbers. So, of course, if you're doing that to and affecting insects, then you're going to affect the birds. If you're affecting the birds, you're going to affect the mammals. It's just a complete knock-on effect. So, in effect, the, the concern is in rural areas with foxes, the decline is largely down to the prey species uh, not being so available. Um, and, of course, they don't have that added advantage of McDonald's being thrown out of the car window. It's so interesting um, to hear all this because we obviously don't know much about foxes and going through your website, you also have a lot of resources. So again, what you said, how this organization started as a place of information, it's still very visible that that you want to spread um, information to the people. And going through your social media channels, for example, on Instagram, you seem to have a lot of people that genuinely care about 
the Fox project? Like you guys have wish lists or something like that? Yes, we're we're we've got a good following. Um I think it's I think we're kind of unique in a way in that most organizations that are wildlife hospitals have got a good supporter base. People do support them because they like the humanity of it, they like the compassion of it. Um I think we've scored because we are um we've come at things from a different angle. We've not just said we are going to help sick and injured animals we are going to help you sort your problems out so it's about helping people and the animal at the same time and i think where we've scored is that a lot of people have have come to us and found that we can offer them a solution in dealing with a fox that they can't that they're unhappy with in their garden whatever and um and what we always what we try to do we're very sneaky what we always try to do is to uh, get people to understand why that animal is doing what it's doing um, so that we can get them interested enough to sort of say, well, uh, now I understand what it's doing. Maybe I can live with that. Um, and that has worked a great deal because that's half the battle. It's not so much that people people have a problem or think they have a problem, but when you point out it's not really a problem, that fox is just doing what it's doing because it needs to, and it's not really causing you too much of a problem, then you don't have um, an anticipation of something worse is going to happen. So it's, it's, it's kind of solving problems for people where they don't really have a problem. And I think we've found a lot of people that have approached us in that way um, have become supporters because they they like what we're doing. Um, so we cross the we cross the borders really. We're helping foxes, but we're helping people that don't like foxes, and that that works both ways. Yeah, it's it's down to like um, it's a great way because you're not open. You're not an organization that's just asking for money or donations to do this. You're doing. A little you're doing so much more and i think when you're not trying to get people to donate 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 they're more likely to do it um, well i do yes yeah 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 that's incredible yeah we we are we are lucky we we do uh we do seem to attract um a good support we can do with more we can always do with more yeah <laughs> money caps from the website, we learned that you're looking to to build a new hospital. Yes, we've got um, we've got an ancient woodland that we're buying, um, which is around about uh, uh, I think it's twenty six hectares, um, uh, most of which we won't touch. It's just ancient woodland, and and it will stay that way, which will serve as a boundary and a barrier around the hospital. Um, there are buildings already there, so we'll just use those and pull some of them down and maybe build new ones on that site, whatever. So we're, we're, um, we have plans and that was, that should start happening towards autumn this year. So we're in the process of uh, um, uh, planning really at the moment. That's great. And how many people um, are working on, um, for example, animal rehabilitation? Like how does your team look like? How big is it? Well, we've got 10 staff, full-time staff members. Um, five of those are hospital staff. Um, uh, the others are administration and fundraising. Um, <coughs> and um, 
Uh, that seems to work for us. But we've also got around about 120 volunteers. Um, so they uh, they work with the hospital mostly, but some of them work on social media and um, uh, and fundraising as well uh, with us. Um, again, we find we do quite well for volunteers. Again, people like uh, like to get involved and like to help. Right now, we've got more volunteers asking to join us than we can use because, of course, we're... Uh, about six weeks away from the beginning of the Cubs season, and everybody loves Cubs. So they want to work with Cubs. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's more than we can possibly handle, and we get that every year. It After the Cubs season, the volunteer numbers go down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but that's fine. I mean, as it, they, they may come in for slightly selfish reasons, but they're still helping us out and doing a great deal of positive work while they're with us. So um, that's all, it's all good. That's yeah. amazing. And how does it feel for, for you to see it evolve into what it is now and what's coming up in the future? I, I, it's very hard. People ask me that question a lot and I, and I don't know. Um, it's, I can't, I sometimes look at it and think, how did we get here and what happened? Because all I did was it was only going to be me. I was just going to be answering the phone and telling people what about you know, about foxes, about fox behaviour, trying to solve their problems, uh, and that was going to be it. And if it didn't work, uh, I mean, I put in a few hundred pounds to start with just to set up a helpline. Um, if it didn't work after three months, I was going to go and drive a bus. Um, so I wasn't really expecting it to do anything very much i just thought it'll tick over it'll rest of my life maybe it'll tick over but it won't necessarily do anything more but life happens to you and um uh and i don't remember when it happened <laughs> but it keeps on happening and uh it's now bigger than me because it's now doing veterinary work that i have no idea about because i'm not a vet um, I, I don't, I, you know, I understand. I suppose you could call me a paramedic. I can deal with minor things, and I and I recognise problems with with sick animals, but I'm not a surgeon and, and I'm not a veterinarian. Um, so we're now employing people who know far more than I do. Uh, we're employing people to do social media. Well, I don't care about social media. I'm really not interested. I'm an old man. <laughs> It doesn't matter to me, you know. Um, I've got my friends. I see them. I don't need to go onto social media to see them. So it's a different world for me. Um, but that's fine because I recognise all the time that there are other people that can do these things uh, and they need to come in and take over from me. And it doesn't matter if I don't understand it, really. So I don't really understand my own organisation that much anymore. It's just about <laughs> building the right team and, you know, putting the right yeah. people in the right places. And giving them motivation. I mean, that's the thing I've always been good at doing is motivating people and allowing them to develop. Uh, because if people are given space to develop and learn, I think they respond yeah. and they serve you very well and they, they can do things that you can't do. Um, so in a way, I'm kind of... Um, I'm doing administration work and a little bit of the fundraising, and I do get involved with the Cubs season a little bit, but I'm sort of backing off um, and trying to let the organisation move forward organically, really, uh, in the way it, it will, with still with some control because, you know, 
I can still be a bit of a fascist when it comes to deciding how things are going to be done. Mm. <laughs> but a benevolent, a benevolent fascist. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think is the so the influx of all the, the volunteers and, and, and the team you build around you, you've got quite a big following, I feel like. How do you think where do all these people come from and what motivates them to to help you? Is it the reputation of the Fox project? Is it um, the website? How do you think, how do these people contact you when they're interested? Uh, well, a lot of the time people come to us because they find a sick or injured animal. It's, a, it's really as simple as that. So they contact us and say, well, I've got a, a fox in the garden. It's suffering from sarcoptic mange. It's got no fur on its back. Um, what can I do to help it? Um, so we give them advice on how can to do that, or or we keep a we keep a register of other organisations that work around the country, and we'll we'll pass them on to those people because we can't cover everywhere. Um, so we are still a kind of an agency in a way in putting people together with somebody that's going to help them. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that wins us a lot of support anyway. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, It, I, I can't really be objective about why people find us so popular. Um, I suppose one thing that's helped us a lot, are you aware of Chris Packham in, uh, in, in, uh, across Europe very much? I'm not. Chris, pa no, I'm not. Chris Packham? Okay, well, Chris Packham is like the young David Attenborough. Okay. He's like he's like the, the he, he will be the next one. Uh, he already is. He's on television a great deal of the time. And he's a great ambassador for wildlife because he sort of talks to people um, much the same as David Attenborough does in not blinding them with science, but talking to them in popular language. Um, so, I mean, we call it pop ecology in a way because you're making it easy for people to understand, not giving them graphs and figures and charts and all that sort of stuff just saying you know simply what these animals are and chris packham is very good at that kind of thing now chris packham is an old friend of mine and he's a patron of the fox project so whenever people see chris packham around they know he's our patron yeah so that that kind of helps in a way we don't we don't we don't really exploit that very much we we make it known that he's our patron but we don't really exploit it in a big way we don't make that we don't say that all the time but people know it and if they know chris backham and they respect him i think that comes down to respecting us in this as by association if you like yeah. so we, we've been lucky in that in that regard i suppose but i, I suppose it, people come to us from all different directions and we can't analyze why and where they come from in a way But it's not, a good, it's a good. Not thing. enough to make, not enough to give you a satisfactory answer. <laughs> so how do you? So there's a big community hanging around the the Fox Project. People that you know encourage you or even volunteer for you, uh, donate. How do you, you know, keep in contact with those people? How do you nurture kind of the relationship? Um, <clears throat> do you, for example, are there workshop or events that you do or? There are not many events because most people, if they want to do, if they want to attend events, they want to come and see our animals. Well, they can't do that because we're a hospital mm -hmm. and um, those animals are in 
they're already stressed because they're in captivity and they shouldn't be. Um, and having them to having them having to face with a, a lot of people coming around is just not fair. We can't do that. We won't do that. Um, so we don't do events in that sort of way. We do. We do a couple of little events every year, but that's when the Cubs are very small and they're not upset by people being around too much. Um, and that only happens for six weeks a year. Um uh between february uh, sorry between march and april other than that i mean we keep in contact <clears throat> as best we can um instead of people coming to see the animals we have an adoption scheme so people can adopt three cubs a year and they will get updates as those cubs come through from the time they're rescued to the time they go back to the wild so they get postal updates or digital updates on email or whatever um so that draws them in that makes them part of the organization <clears throat> um as far as keeping people interested is concerned well facebook is is our main social outlet although we do use instagram twitter tiktok as well i don't even know what they are <laughs> uh, but but the means of course of, of of saying well we've rescued this animal it's suffering from this but we hope it's going to do okay and, and we'll put that up on Facebook. Now, that obviously is partly to do with fundraising because that generates funds straight away because people will straight away put their card into the machine or send us a check or whatever the case may be. Um, so that's good news for us. But it's also good news for them because it it encourages them to understand that, the, that things are possible, that an animal that's sick, injured, that's been hit by a car does have a future and does have a second chance. So... All of that's very valuable. As far as people that are already already working with us, like volunteers and like supporters, they get newsletters, they get updates. Um, volunteers have their own sort of network within the organisation, so they all know where they're, uh, who else, who everybody else is, and uh, um, and how they fit in. Um, we 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 try to be as inclusive as we possibly can, without compromising the care of the animals which is the important thing. That's the bottom line, after all. Hmm. Um, is that, did I go off, Tan? Did I go off uh, subject there or? <laughs> no, it was, it was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? Okay. Um, I'm curious, throughout your time in the organization, what has been a highlight of, of your career, basically? A moment that you always treasure, that you keep close to your heart? Uh. Uh, perhaps there are two things I can think of in my life that relate to the Fox Project that make me uh, that made me what I am and brought me to where I am. The first thing was when I was about nine years old, and I was on my uncle's farm, and I'd never seen a fox, and we were just walking across through an orchard, and, uh, and on a beautiful sunny day, and suddenly out of the ground it seemed to come this flame. And it was a red fox, a very red fox, it seems to me. And it was disturbed by us coming towards it. It was high. We hadn't seen it. And it just shot out of the grass and ran away. And it was like a nine-year-old. Uh, it was like walking towards a flame. And <clears throat> that just stuck in my mind. And and uh, although I didn't get involved with foxes for years later, many years later, because I had another career going on, um, uh that was always there. The other thing was that uh, about 10 years ago, um, <clears throat> I was driving 
uh, somewhere not very far from here. And up in the field, along to the side of the road, I glimpsed a fox on the side of a field, just sitting there scratching, just scratching itself, you know, leg kicking and all that sort. And uh, and I stopped, I pulled the car over and I stopped and I got my binoculars out and I was looking at it. And, I, and then I thought, <clears throat> why am I doing this? I've got 600 foxes that we're dealing with back there and I've got out of the car to watch this fox. Why am I doing that? And it occurred to me that the reason I'm doing that is because what I like most of all is to see a fox in its natural surroundings doing what it normally does in its own on its own terms. Um, and no matter what I do, it, nothing is as good as that, as yeah. watching the animal, you know. Um, so they're not quite kind of highlights of the fox project, but they're, they're signals as to what makes me what I am, I suppose, within the organisation. Yeah, and why you you started this and why you it's, yes, there's the other motivation, you know, that's where the motivation is, yeah. So what is um you mentioned so for example, right now, roughly how many foxes are in the hospital? Um uh, only about eight. Okay. Uh, they're all adult foxes with the cubby the cub season hasn't started yet. The cub season will start very shortly. Mm -hmm. the first cubs will come in probably towards the end of February. And um, over the following three months, we'll probably have something around 300 cubs. Um, so they all have to be brought up, um, uh, got back to the wild at the end of summer. Um, so they've got to be kept wild or turned wild. Um, they all, they're coming in individually. They have to be grouped into new uh, families um, yeah. and bonded uh, and, Kept away from us because we 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 don't want them going back to the world thinking humans are great because all humans are great. Stay away from <laughs> humans. That's the message. Yeah, yeah, that's the principal thing. So by the time they go back to the world, even though we'll, we'll have brought them up, um, feeding them on a bottle yeah. um, uh, in our lap and and letting them sleep on us while we're watching television, even. Even after that, we can turn them around and get them back to the wild safely. And that's our main aim. So there'll be about 300 cubs come through uh, the system in the space of about four months, I suppose. So it's our peak time that's coming up. It's our heavy time. Yeah. How do you how do you prepare maybe a cub, but also just an adult fox? How do you prepare it for to, to basically go back into the wild? What are some of the things you do? <laughs> Um, the main thing with cubs is um, whoever's if, if I brought it up by feeding it on the bottle, I won't have anything to do with it after about three weeks. I'll pass it on to somebody else. So we've got this network of fosterers and, and uh, um, people that work from home and um, uh, with young cubs, we'll pass them on to them so that they're breaking away from me. And as soon as I get used to those people, we'll move them on again. So Rita over there has five cubs. Uh, Daisy over there has five cubs. They're getting too friendly, so we switch them over. Yeah. So now you've got ten cubs who are not very happy because they were very fond of the person that they were being fed by, and they're not so sure now. So you keep on doing that through the spring and the early summer. Um, when they get outside, they're in outside pens in people's gardens. We've got 
about 30 people who've got pens in their gardens. So we were able to share the burden, share the load. Um, the, the foxes aren't all at the hospital by any means. They're moved out to, to all these network of volunteers. Um, and by the end of the summer, most of them have gone wild naturally. If they don't, then we have a particular pens that we can put them in where for some reason they go wild anyway. And we don't really understand why what the reason of that is, but it happens. Um, as far as adult foxes are concerned, they're never in for very long. I mean, most problems with adult foxes are, it's either something we can do about quickly, um, like a, a broken bone or, or a, a parasite problem or an infection or a virus. So we can deal with that fairly quickly and get the animal back out again. And the adult foxes always go back where they came from um, because that's their territory. We're not going to move them somewhere else. We're always going to put them back to where they came from. Urban foxes will always go back to an urban area. Rural foxes will always go back to a rural area because culturally uh, that's what they know. So that's important to, to do that. Um, uh, over the years, we've learned what's the best way to approach things for the best result in the end. And we think we, we're as good as we can get at the moment, but you're never as good as you can get. No, in five years from now, it will probably be... We'll have a different way of doing things. Yeah, yeah. probably better as well. Better, yeah. And, uh, the, uh, and where we'll have learned from is from the foxes themselves, because that's where, you know, what's best for them, they know best. Well, yeah, you've built an amazing and incredible organization. It's really Thank interesting to, to learn more about it. So to kind of end maybe this interview, what are, so let's say there's this younger guy or girl who wants to do something similar as you did in your life and, and build and start um, a nonprofit organization that wants to help animals, something like that. What what are a couple of tips or things you've done that you would suggest people do? Um, I think the the important thing. I mean, I've done this a lot of times because we've tried to help other organizations, new people um, to to set up their own organization. So. I can think of maybe four or five different wildlife hospitals that exist now because we've helped them to, to come on. I can think of maybe two or three times more that number that we've tried to help and have failed. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's because people have to be adaptable. Um, they have to be, they have to look at it like a business because you can't do anything without money. It's a simple fact of life. You can't do anything. You've got to buy medicines. You've got to buy fuel for ambulances. Um, and if you want people to be um, continuity of, of how you organize your organization, you need to have permanent people who are paid. And if they're going to be, if you're going to do that, you've got to be responsible about employing people, employing the right people um, and trying to pay them as well as you can, because, Everybody's got a mortgage or rent to pay. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to think about their 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 future too. You can't run a successful organization purely on volunteers. It won't work because people have their own lives to run. Um, they've got to feed themselves. They've got to feed their families. Um, you've got to look after them too. So you have to look after the people as well as the animals. Um, if you get all that right, you get a good balance, Um uh, and you and you allow, as I've said, people to develop on them in themselves. Mm -hmm. 
to find out what they're good at and to be enthusiastic about what they're good at and to want to learn, then that's what you have to do. You have to do what – I think you have to look at yourself and think, well, what what made me do what I want to do? Um, you've got to do the same thing. So all I can ever do is just say, well, um, I'm an example, good or bad, take it or leave it, but it worked for me. <laughs> yeah. I found it very interesting, the part in the beginning when you told us that you're now basically in a situation where the organization is almost running, the people in the organization, except you, is almost running itself without you. Not 100%, but that's really that you can yeah. give people a job with responsibilities and enough motivation and enough room for them mm -hmm. to to do that. Yeah, I think that's yeah. very, very inspiring. And, and you don't see that a lot in in organizations or, or you know normal businesses either. Mm -hmm. You don't see that a lot. So that's, that's really I cool. think the trouble I think the trouble is with people sometimes is they become very obsessive about their own way of doing things and they think that's the only way to do something. And there's never only one way of doing things. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you have to look at other people and say, well, how would you do that? And you can say that didn't work for me and it's maybe not a great idea, but you can't say there's only one way of doing things. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think on that subject, it's it's quite what you said there is 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 important because I do know, as I mentioned organizations that we've tried to help find their way. And in some cases they they couldn't find their way because they were, uh, it was all about the one person that sorted, started the organization and they couldn't let go. Mm -hmm. They couldn't share it. They couldn't let go. They tried to run it all themselves. Sometimes they've passed away. They've died and the organization has just died with them because it didn't have a setup to continue. With the Fox Project, I know that I can die, preferably not yet, <laughs> um, but uh, I know I can die and it will continue to go. And that's important to me because otherwise... Well, what was I doing? <laughs> yeah. yeah, amazing. Incredible. Well, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Yeah. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity.